Yeah, you can be seated this morning. Good morning, Life Church. It is good to see you this morning. If you're a guest with us today and we don't know one another, I will just introduce myself. My name is James Sharp. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm really glad that you are with us this morning, whether you're here in the room or whether you're online with us via our live stream. We do just want to say welcome to you this morning. And I hope you have a Bible with you or a way to get the Bible on your phone or your tablet. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 1, beginning right in the middle of verse 18 here in a few moments. And so I'll let you pull that up and land there. In 1993, a man named Bill Jiraki was fishing in Colorado when he slipped on a rock and got his leg wedged between two boulders so that he couldn't move, he was, he was stuck. Um, snow was in the forecast, he didn't have a coat with him or a pack or any kind of communication device and so seeing that the weather was about to get really bad, Bill did what he felt like was the only thing he could do. He used his fishing knife to amputate his own leg right at the knee joint and then he pulled the hemostats out of his fishing kit to clamp his bleeding arteries. Then he crab walked back to his truck and drove himself to the hospital. A man named Aaron Ralston had a similar experience hiking in Utah in 2003. Again, he slipped and got not his leg, but his arm wedged between two boulders. He was stuck there for six days waiting for help. Help never came, and so finally Aaron took his multi-tool, cut his own arm off, and then though he was dehydrated and exhausted, repelled 60 feet down a cliff with only one arm, hiked for eight miles until he ran into a Dutch family that was hiking in the same area who were able to call in a rescue helicopter to get him some help. What do these stories illustrate for us beyond some survival tips that might come in handy the next time you're out on the Appalachian Trail? They illustrate that human beings will do remarkable things in order to live. We'll do remarkable things in order to have life. And that's true of you even if you've never been tempted to sever your own limbs with a pocket knife, right? We will do remarkable things in order to live. If we're sick, we will pay money for the best doctors and to be treated in the best hospital facilities. If we feel like we aren't in shape, we will commit ourselves wholeheartedly to ridiculous diet regimes and exercise regimes. And when a pandemic rolls up on us, We'll shelter in place for months on end if we think that that's what's necessary in order for us to live. Human beings will do remarkable things in order to live. But that principle begs a question. What is it that you're living for? A few verses that we're going to look at in the book of Philippians this morning They're written from a Roman prison cell by the Apostle Paul as he is near the very end of his life. And they provide for us a really stunning vision of what life is worth living for. And so I'm so grateful that we get to spend 30 or so minutes in these verses this morning. Let's read together. Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 26. Paul's writing to the church in Philippi and he says, yes, and I will rejoice for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this, speaking of his imprisonment, this will turn out for my deliverance 
as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Church, this is God's word for us this morning. Let's pray again that the Lord would stir our minds and hearts to understand and order our lives around these ideas today. Heavenly Father, I do pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would work in us to open our eyes and unstop our ears, that we might not just hear these words, but that we would, we would truly understand them and even find the beauty that is in them, that we might live lives for the right reason, that we might give ourselves for what is transcendent and ultimate, that we might live in a way that gives you glory and that rightly reflects and responds to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And so we need your help as we even just begin to think about those things this morning. I pray for that reason, Spirit, that you will speak here and now among us. I pray that you will uh, just move me out of the way so that we hear not my voice, but yours this morning as we press into these words. We pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. So verse 21 here um, is one of the most famous and well-loved statements in the entire Bible. Paul, he writes there, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that is really like the theological heartbeat of Paul's letter to the Philippians. Really, it's the theological heartbeat of Paul's whole life and his whole ministry and it's just this central truth, right, that, that runs through this letter and it runs through the Bible and Lord willing it will run through our lives as well. Paul says essentially that life is Christ, right, period. Life isn't Christ plus anything else, it's, it's, it's Christ. And so because this idea here in verse 21 is so immense, we're just gonna try to sit under the weight of it for a while this morning and then after we've done that, after we've considered verse 21 fully, I'll spend just a few minutes at the end kind of putting verse 21 in the context of the rest of this passage. So let's think about verse 21 together. Paul, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now our problem is, and it was surely the Philippians' problem, it's our problem too, we have a habit of agreeing with Paul when he says that, but then living otherwise. In other words, we will say that life is Christ, but then we'll live like life is really Christ plus something else. And the issue is that because we have Christ, 
We'll really focus on the something else that we don't maybe have that we'd like to have or the something else that we do have that we'd like to hold on to. And so that something else becomes the focus of our life. It becomes the things that we press into. It becomes the thing that we chase after. It becomes the thing that we pursue. And so rather than living lives that pursue Jesus, we live lives that pursue whatever thing that we think we need in addition to Jesus is, hoping that that thing will make us happy. But that's not Paul's life, right? Paul says life is Christ. And as he says that, he summons us to believe the same thing and to live the same thing. As I was just chewing on this this week, um, it, it became helpful for me to think about what we're talking about in terms of a math equation, right? And so this is, this is Paul's math equation in verse 21. He says, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, right? To live is Christ. That's what he means. He doesn't need anything beyond Christ in order to have life and joy and happiness and fullness and peace. So Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But of course, our problem is that we are easily tempted to believe that Jesus plus something else equals everything. Again, we believe we already have Jesus. We're not happy. So we must need something beyond Jesus in order to be happy. And then we spend our lives pursuing and chasing after that something else. Because this is the way we're wired, one of the most critical questions we can then answer is, what is that something else for me? What is the something beyond Jesus that I'm convinced I need in order to be happy or to have joy or to find fullness and peace in life? What do I think that I need in addition to Christ in order to have everything? That's one of the most critical questions that we can answer. And so I'd press you to answer it for yourself this morning. Consider your life. Consider the way that you spend your time, your energy, your money, the things that you invest yourself in. What do those things reveal about what you really think that you need in order to be happy? Or consider even the things that you daydream about, right? When, you're, when your mind subconsciously wonders to things that you'd long to have or relationships that you'd long to enjoy or situations that you'd long to experience, what do you subconsciously reveal your heart thinks it needs in order to have everything? Or consider even what you rejoice in, right? What we rejoice in that reveals what we value. We delight in what matters most to us. And so what is it that makes you happy? What is it that brings you joy in life? And what is that reveal that you think that you need in order to have everything? How do you fill in this blank? Christ plus something else, anything else, equals everything. Now, there are three things that we should consider as we kind of wrap our minds around this question. What is the something else for me? How do I fill in the blank? Here's, here's the first one. The problem with this pursuit of something else, it's not what we desire, but it's the intensity of our desires. 
And so it's important to realize that. We're not just talking about desiring things that are sinful. We're not talking about desiring things that are evil. In fact, for most of us, the way that we fill in that blank, we'll fill in that blank with something that is good or something that can be good. We'll fill in that blank with something that is holy or something that can be holy. We won't pursue, most of us, hard after things that are ostensibly evil. The issue isn't what we desire, but it will be the intensity of our desires. And so if you're a single person in the room, it is not sinful of you to desire a spouse. The problem becomes when we desire a spouse so intensely, so consumingly, that we can't imagine life without that spouse. If you're a parent in the room, It's not sinful of you to desire a successful or prosperous or secure future for your children. And it's not sinful of you to to give of yourself in your life for that. The problem is not that particular desire. The problem is when you desire that so intensely that you become wrapped up in that and believe that if you don't have that, then there's no way that you can have a good life. Right? It's not sinful to desire money even. I mean, it's not sinful to long for financial stability and security and even more than what you really need in order to live off of. It's not sinful to desire that, but it is sinful to love money and to become so convinced in your soul that money is the key to happiness, that you give everything in your life in order to have money. And so that's the first thing we have to realize is that the problem will not be what we desire, most likely. The problem will be that we desire it too intensely. Secondly, we have to look beneath the surface of our desires in order to find the root desires that really control us. When we're trying to answer the question, what is my something else? Jesus plus something else equals everything. For most of us, the something else is not gonna be something that's visible above the surface. It will be something deep, beneath the surface that we can't see. Think of your desires like an iceberg in this sense. So according to news reports from the time, the iceberg that sunk Titanic was something like 400 feet long and between 50 and 100 feet tall above the surface. But scientists would tell you that that probably represented at most 10% of that iceberg's size and mass and power. More than 90% of it was invisible to the naked eye because it was beneath the surface. And so the true power of that iceberg, it was beneath the surface and not above. And the same principle is true when it comes to the things that we desire as fallen and sinful people. Right? The vast majority of the power of our desires lies beneath the surface and not above the surface. Above the surface, it's easy to see what we desire. It's easy to feel what we desire but those desires simply serve the controlling root desires that lie beneath the surface. Now, over the last 10 years or so, my own thinking on this particular idea, it's been shaped especially by the teaching and writing of two men, Timothy Keller and a man named David Paulison. And so if I say anything about this that sounds even remotely smart, just rest assured that I'm sure I've stolen it from them, right? Because they're the really smart men who have spoken into this issue and my own understanding. But Keller and Paulison agree that for most people, most of our above-the-surface desires fit into one of four beneath-the-surface root-level desires. 
And this is thinking about my own life and my own heart. This is certainly true for me. I imagine that it's true for you. And so as we, as we seek to figure out what our answer is to the question, Jesus plus what something else equals everything, in all likelihood, that something else for us is one of these four beneath the surface root level desires. It's either power, approval, comfort, or control. Power, approval, comfort, and control. Those are the four root level beneath the surface desires that most of our above the surface desires fit into. Let's just think about those four categories for a minute. And just to help us think about it, let's think about what it's like to desire money above the surface and how that above the surface desire for money fuels our beneath the surface desires for power, control, comfort, or approval. So some people want money because what they really want is power, right? How does, how does money get you power? Well, the person in any relationship with the money is the person who has influence. It's the person who exerts will and dominance in that relationship. And so you think about any community organization, right? Like the person who writes the biggest check in that organization usually has the most say. It's not the way it should be. It's just the way it is. In any society, it's the rich who have the power. It's the rich who get to exercise authority. And so some people, they long for money just so that they can have power. Even just like in their family relationships, right? They, they want to have money so that people are coming to them needing money because if somebody, if somebody comes to you needing money, then you have like enormous influence and power over them. And so for a lot of people, the desire for money isn't just simply a desire to have a bank account full of cash. It's a desire to be able to wield power and influence over people in their lives, but still for other people, the desire for money isn't about power, it's, it's about approval, right? Like if you have the most money, then you can buy the nicest stuff. You can drive the nicest car and wear the nicest clothes and live in the nicest gated community in your city and you can pull the nicest smartphone out of your pocket and those are the things that we use in our society in order to win approval from others, right? And so the easiest path to earn love and approval from other people it is often through money in our society. And so people will love money for that reason because they just long to be accepted or to be desired. They wanna live the kind of life where other people see them and say, I wanna be like that person. And money is often the easiest path to such approval. But still some people, they, they love money because they love comfort, right? Beneath the surface is a desire for a life of ease or a life of pleasure. And if you have money, then you can invest in the things that give you ease and pleasure. If you have money, then you're able to treat yourself and get whatever it is that you want to fill your life with in order to make yourself comfortable. And so people will love money above the surface, but what they'll really be longing for beneath the surface is comfort. And finally, the same thing is true of control. Right? If you have money, then you can at least maintain for a while the illusion that you get to say what your life is going to be like. You get to maintain the illusion that life will go according to your plan because you have the money that projects control onto your life. It was really striking in 2008 when the stock market and housing market crashed, the beginning of you know, what we now call the Great Recession, 
Um, in that season when billionaires lost their fortunes, uh, there were a number of like executives from really massive global corporations and CEOs from massive global banks who tragically took their own lives as they stared down the fact that they had lost millions or even billions of dollars. Why did they do that? You know, it's, I mean, they lost tons of money, sure, but it's not like suddenly these people were made like paupers overnight, right? We're talking about the kinds of people who owned multiple exotic vacation homes and exotic destinations. We're talking about the kind of people who like flew helicopters from their house to their workplace every day. It's not like suddenly because the stock market crashed, these people were forced to move in with their mom in their basement, right? It's not like suddenly they became poor overnight. Many people have commented that almost surely the issue is the fact that in the loss of so much money, they realized that they were maintaining only an illusion of control over their lives and that they didn't really have the control that their hearts longed for, the, the, the control that their hearts desired beneath the surface. For so many people, a love of money boils down to the fact that you can control what your life looks like. It's a great idol that grabs at our hearts. It's one of those desires that lurks beneath the surface. And so as you sit here this morning, as we're, as we're wrestling with this idea that Paul puts before us, that to live is Christ, that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. We're trying to process what's the answer to the question on our end when we fill something else into that blank other than nothing. Christ plus something else equals everything. What is that something else for you? What do you long for most in life? Jesus plus what root desire seems to be everything to you? I told you there are three things we needed to think about as we considered this. Here's the last one. The only way to displace our root desires is to learn by the grace of God and the power of his Holy Spirit to desire Jesus more than we desire those root desires. In other words, church, we're not to face our root desires and strive to avoid them. We're not to stare down power or approval or comfort and control and summon all the energy that's in us to avoid desiring those things. No, we're not to face our desires and try to move away from them. We're to face Jesus and to strive to move toward him. Let me illustrate that this way. I'm convinced that one of God's great kindnesses to his people is the coffee bean, right? In my mind, like a cup of hot, dark, black, bold coffee, that's one of like the sweetest things that the Lord has given us. And uh, I mean, I'll just, I'm telling you that October is Pastor Appreciation Month, and so um, you know, I'll just drop that out there, right? You know, if you're thinking about James Sharp this month, coffee is always a great way to go. If you're thinking about Matt Perez this month, coffee is also a great way to go because he doesn't like coffee, and so if you give it to him, he might give it to me, and so that would be a win-win, I'm sure, but, but I, just, I just love coffee, right? It's one of those sweet things in my life that I love to drink way too much of. Um, let's say that you think that you like coffee, but what you really like is, you know, the kind of lukewarm, weak, brown water that is often served as coffee in, like, gas stations and cheap chain restaurants, 
Let's say that this is what you think is a great cup of coffee. If I want to persuade you that your desire for that kind of coffee is deficient, I'm not going to rebuke you, right? I'm not going to say to you, no, this is bad coffee. What I'm going to do is we're going to walk together down to Coco Java, and I'm going to ask Arturo to brew us two hot cups of whatever he has roasted most recently, and we're going to sit in downtown Salisbury, and we're going to drink real coffee, bold coffee, strong coffee. And I'm going to help you turn away from your deficient desire by pointing you to something that is better. It's a silly illustration, but that is exactly how our hearts will turn from our deficient root desires for something other than Jesus. We aren't to stare down those desires and strive to avoid them. We're to stare at Jesus. And as the Holy Spirit opens our hearts and eyes to perceive his beauty and his glory, we'll become convinced. Seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, that's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, we will come to learn and believe that Jesus is better than anything else we might desire. And friends, he is better than any of those root desires. I mean, he's better than our desire for power. He is because Jesus had true power, yet in heaven he set all of that power aside so that he could come in human form, in the incarnation, as a tiny little powerless baby, all so that he could live a perfect life and then die a perfect substitutionary death in our place. That's why Jesus himself said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus said his life was all about handing off power so that he could serve you and me. He's better than power. And he's better than comfort, right? Because Jesus in heaven had every comfort, yet he set those things aside and endured all of the limitations of humanity so that he could be afflicted as we are afflicted, so that he could experience sorrow as we experience sorrow, all so that when he was nailed to the cross and then rose again three days later, we might be raised with him to a life in which we will experience no affliction anymore and in which we will have true comfort forever and ever and ever. And Jesus, he gives us true True approval, not the weak, empty kind of approval that the world might offer you because you have a lot of money, but the true, lasting approval that can come only when your heavenly Father says about you, not because of anything that you've done, but because of the perfect substitutionary life that Christ has lived for you. Well done, good and faithful servant. I mean, that's a true and better approval that will not last for a moment or a lifetime, but for eternity. And Jesus, he had perfect control, but he's so much better than the weak, empty kind of control that we think we might be able to have over our lives. Colossians tells us that in him all things hold together. Hebrews 1 tells us that he spoke the universe into existence and that he sustains that existence by his powerful word. Jesus, he has true control, perfect control, infinite control. And yet he does not use that to subjugate us or to oppress us or to harm us, but instead in love to lay down his life for us. And Jesus, he is truly and infinitely better than any desire that might lurk beneath or above the surface in our lives, which is why Paul can say, to live is Christ. 
And when he says to live as Christ, then and only then can he genuinely and honestly say, and to die is gain. You see, if you're convinced that everything in life is Christ plus something else, then you hate death. You fear death. Because in death, you know you're going to lose that something else. But if you're convinced that Christ plus nothing equals everything, then you'll welcome death. Because in death, you're going to lose nothing, and you're going to gain Christ for eternity. I mean, now at best, we see him only in part. In death, we will see him fully and eternally. Now we see, as through a mirror dimly, then we will see him face to face and be transformed by him into his glorious being. And so death is gain when you really believe that Christ is everything. Church, I pray that we would be people who believe, as Paul does, that Christ is life and that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Paul believed that. He lived that. I pray that we will too. So that's 30 minutes or so on one verse. Let me spend about five minutes putting that verse into the context of these other seven verses so that we can really understand what Paul is saying to us here. In verses 18 and 19, Paul describes his source of power. Look with me. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. So he's talking about some kind of future joy that he's going to have. And here's why he's going to have it. He says, for I know, verse 19, that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this his imprisonment, will turn out for my deliverance. Now, I don't believe here that Paul is confident that he's going to be released from prison. The way that he uses this word, my deliverance, it doesn't really seem to suggest, especially as we keep reading in this passage, that he's convinced that he's going to get out of jail free one day. Right? No, I think Paul wholeheartedly believes that he might die while he's in this Roman prison cell. So he's not confident about being released. What he's confident about is that he'll be vindicated that even in his imprisonment, Christ will be honored. But what I think is so remarkable about this verse is the fact that Paul rejoices even while in prison. And why does he do that? Well, he says it in verse 19. It's because he knows through the prayers of the Philippians and through the power, the help of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus will be honored even if he dies in this Roman prison cell. I just think that's, Incredible. Paul is, he's basically like a superhero, right? If you really look at the man's life and you consider the dude's ministry, I mean, he did incredible things and suffered incredible things for the sake of the gospel. He was beaten, he was shipwrecked, he was stoned, he was wrongly accused, he was thrown in prison, he was shamed and humiliated. Time and time again, awful things happened to Paul. But though he was like a superhero, he didn't do those things out of his own power. He had no superpowers. What he had, verse 19 tells us, is the prayers of God's people and the power of God's spirit. My question is, if even Paul relied on the prayers of God's people, doesn't that encourage you to and move you to pray? Doesn't that encourage you to and move you to pray for others and to seek prayer from others? I mean, if even Paul relied 
on the Philippians prayers. Won't we as well? Let's keep going. Verse 20, we see Paul's ambition. He says, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And so right there is the meaning of Paul's life. It's the purpose of Paul's life. It's why he breathes on the face of the earth so that Christ will be honored in his body whether he dies or lives. Paul doesn't care so long as Christ is honored. That is his great ambition, his great desire in life. Because life is Christ and death is gain, Paul bleeds and breathes in order to honor Jesus and make much of Jesus poses him with a dilemma. Look at verse 22. He says, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. He's weighing life or death, the value of life and the gain of death. Which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And so Paul, he's weighing these two options, right? This fork in the road that he's standing at. And I don't think, by the way, that he thinks he has any control over this. Right? This is purely hypothetical from Paul. He's not honestly considering taking his life. He has no say in whether he will live or die. He's tr- simply trying to consider what will come from each of these two options. And he says, look, if I live, that's better for you because then I can serve you and you get Christ. But if I die, that's better for me because then I'll be with Jesus and I'll get Christ. This is dilemma. But notice his determination. Verse 25, he says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all. Why? For your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Right there. Paul, he prefers to remain, to live. Not for himself. It's just himself, man. The decision's easy, death is gain. But he's thinking about the Philippians. He's thinking about these other churches that he's planted. He's thinking about the believers that have looked to him for pastoral care and guidance and teaching. And he knows that if he remains and continues, then he can continue to live so that they might receive progress and joy in the faith. You see those words right there? Verse 25. He continues for their progress and joy in the faith. Which just leads to the question, are we living for Jesus the way that Paul lived for Jesus? What's the purpose in his life? Why does he want to remain, to continue? So that others might grow. So that others might know Jesus more. So that others might experience increasing faith in Jesus. So that others might find more and more joy in Jesus. We can't read Paul say those words without wondering if this is really the way that we're living our lives. Are you living so that others might make progress in their faith? Are you living so that others might rejoice in Jesus more? 
I mean, friends, these are, these are critical questions in this cultural moment. What the pandemic has done is it has lulled us to sleep, essentially, I fear. This is my fear. I can't say that this is 100% true. It may not be true for you at all, but just as I look at us, as I look at the culture at large, what I fear is happening right now is that the pandemic has caused Christians to search out and to seek self-preservation when the New Testament calls us to live lives of self-sacrifice. Right? The pandemic has put us in this mindset where what we really care most about is, is staying alive, right? is caring for ourselves when the New Testament calls us most of all to give our lives to serve others. And we see that right here in Paul, don't we? He says, if it's up to me, if it's just me, man, death is gain. But he wants to continue, even though that means rotting in a prison cell and whatever other affliction and humiliation comes with that, so that he can serve the progress and joy in the faith for others. And I just pray that as people and as a church in particular, that we aren't lulled to sleep in this cultural moment in a way that we just can never wake up. I mean, we're really facing these things as a church right now. I'll just like kind of lift the lid for you a little bit on this. Um, the last few weeks, we've had back in this room, um, almost 50% of the people that were in this room on an average Sunday before the pandemic hit. And we're, we're really grateful for that, right? We're celebrating that. Um, the fact that people are feeling more and more comfortable coming back and more and more recognizing the fact that gathering with God's people is an incredibly significant and essential part of our lives as a Christian. And of course, if you're at home and you're hanging out on the live stream because it's not safe for you to be here um, or for any other reason, we, we support that and, and love you and glad that you're still able to participate with us in this way. But we just wanna recognize the fact that it's a good thing that people are coming back more and more. And so, you know, maybe now it's like we're 50% full, but we still have 100% of the work that God has called us to do, right? I mean, right there, right now, we have rooms full of young children who need disciple makers, not 50% of disciple makers, 100% of the disciple makers necessary to invest in these young lives so that they can learn and grow and understand that to live is Christ and to die is gain. We have 100% of our need in terms of life groups, people who are gonna shepherd and pour into and disciple other adults so that they can find connection in life. We have 100% of the need in terms of first impressions folks outside who can you know, manage to smile through their face mask and make others feel welcome and greeted as they walk through the doors on Sunday morning. We have 100% of our needs with our ministry partners locally and to the ends of the earth, right? Organizations that we are investing in as a church that are seeking to help and hurt and heal broken people, suffering people in our community, people who are trying to take the gospel to the nations in the ends of the earth. Those needs have not gone away simply because the coronavirus is here. Right? We have needs. But many of us, we're just, we're just waiting for life to get back to normal. Meanwhile, there are people who don't know that Christ is life. We need to hear that from our mouths and to see that in the way we're honestly living our lives. That's why I just ask you, is your ambition, Paul's ambition, is the purpose of your life the purpose of Paul's life? I pray that we would be a people who believe and who proclaim and who live like Jesus plus nothing equals everything so that others might understand that 
from us. I opened this morning with a couple of stories of people who did extraordinary things in order to live. I'll close with a story about a man who faced an extraordinary death so that others might have the chance to live for eternity. In the late 19th century, um, a Scottish missionary named John Patton set sail for the South Sea Islands, that's what they were called at the time, um, and the particular island he was headed towards and the particular people he was going to serve, um, they were known to be cannibals. And there are many people in John Patton's life who tried to persuade him not to go. They tried to persuade him not to put his own life or his wife's life in danger by going to serve among these cannibals. One such person who tried to persuade Patton to stay was a man named Mr. Dixon. And Patton's response to Dixon is written down here. It remains in my mind one of the sweetest and most beautiful and convicting expressions of this idea to live as Christ and to die as gain. So let me just read to you what John Patton said. He said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now and your own prospect, by that he means your own body, is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by the worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Church, may we know Christ like the Apostle Paul and like John Patton. May we live for Christ like the Apostle Paul and John Patton. And may we face death like the Apostle Paul and John Patton, knowing that in death we'll gain Christ for eternity. Jesus, we pray that with the eyes of our hearts we would be able to see that you are indeed more precious, more beautiful, more desirable than anything this world has to offer us. We pray that we would see you for who you are, who you are. We pray that we would value you and rejoice in you and recognize that you are truly precious. And then we pray that we would pour out our lives for you because of that. We pray that in your name, Jesus.